When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Mysterious Universe, Season 29, Episode 2. Coming up on the show, we've got French phone calls from the dead, reincarnating in the Enchanted Zone, and how the failure of the NSA created a cyber pandemic. I'm Benjamin Grundy. Joining me is Aaron Wright. What do you mean by a cyber pandemic? Well, it's like a viral pandemic in that it spreads and infects targets across the entire world at an incredibly rapid pace. And this is all from this brand new book that came out from James Bamford, which I'm just completely blown away by. I started reading it yesterday and thought, this will be great for the show. And then I just glanced at how big it was on my Kindle. It's like 726 pages. <laughs> no! Great. great for the show. So uh, I've covered just some of the first uh, stories and intrigue that he includes in this. It's called Spy Fail, Foreign Spies, Mole Saboteurs and the Collapse of America's Counterintelligence. Oh. And Bamford lays out this argument through just incredible storytelling that the intelligence services in the United States, you know, the CIA, the FBI, the NSA, have been unimaginably incompetent over the last uh, decade or more. And it's led to like the rise of China. It's led to cyber pandemics, which I'm going to get into. It's led to... Obviously, massive amounts of espionage. Huge uh, stealing of IP mm-hmm. and, and technology. And just a, a general failure in their duties. And he's he really doesn't pull any punches. Uh, and Hollywood's involved as well. Uh, we're going to hear about uh, spies connected with the Clintons later on in the show. Uh, there's a bunch of North Korean stuff. I was blown away by some of the North Korean stories because you think of North Korea as this, uh, obviously, uh, horrible dictatorship and you know, the citizens suffer under it. Uh, but you also think of them as kind of backwards and, you know, stuck in the 1970s and they have kind of silly fake rockets. And yeah. yes, they've got nuclear weapons, but are they really capable? of sending them anywhere. But what I realised from Bamford's work is that after Kim Jong-un came in, he really set about, because he was he was raised in the West, he really set about creating almost like a Silicon Valley in Pyongyang. And to some extent, he achieved it. There are technical universities in Pyongyang that now uh, outrank places like Harvard and Stanford you know in what? terms of their coding abilities and their ability to basically use uh, cyber warfare. Isn't that hardly surprising though now? You can see what's happening in the West. The West is unfortunately so caught up with uh, political issues and so focused on that, that things like math and science and coding and all that kind of stuff has really kind of fallen down in the priorities. You're totally right. I did think about that as well. I was like, okay, so you've got you know a bunch of uh, screaming harpies throwing uh, blood in protests and yeah. milkshakes at these universities. <laughs> everywhere else in the world, well, not everywhere else, but 
uh, in these other countries, they are still focused on the fundamentals. Well, it's kind of part of the fall of the West. You know, I see this being, you know, kind of spouted about online and I often think, oh, no, that's just, you know, a really ridiculous kind of concept. But we're beginning to actually see it. There is this kind of collapse that at least is happening politically in the West right now, which is then, you know, carrying on to other sectors within our civilization. And it could be quite dangerous. And from what you've been telling me, some of the stories, Ben, which we're going to get into, it seems like we are at an extreme risk right now. Well, the story I'm going to tell you today centers around that movie, The Interview, that oh. came out a few years ago. Remember when Seth Rogen and James Franco play the characters that are hired by the CIA to go to North Korea and assassinate Kim Jong-un? Yeah, wasn't that around the time that the Sony service got hacked and all the embarrassing emails got leaked? I'm going to go into all of that story, tell that story in detail, because now that uh, Bamford's done this full investigation, he's got uh, you know inside information from the agencies, he's got all the emails that were exposed by the hack, and you get to hear this narrative of how this all took place. And during this, um, the production of this movie and essentially how North Korea and Kim Jong-un's cyber warriors were taking control of Sony, how there were other secrets in play that involved a cyber attack that the Americans attempted on North Korea years before that the Koreans didn't know about. And there was this kind of underlying threat when all of this was brewing back in, what was it, 2014 or whenever it was, that that secret would be exposed and enrage the North Koreans even more. And ultimately, I'll explain how this led to this massive cyber pandemic and how this hacking affected uh, some guy named Bob who was going in for heart surgery in London. Okay. All right. You've got me definitely intrigued. It's rather fitting that you should use the term, though, cyber pandemic, because if you've been following around the news recently, uh, the World Economic Forum has just had their annual conference in Davos in, in, in Switzerland. And one of the things that they've been talking, and let's be honest, the World Economic Forum looks like a Dr. Evil conference table. I mean, they're all <laughs> sitting around talking about it, lecturing to us about how we should live our lives and how we should cut back on carbon while they're flying in on their private jets. Like, I won't even get into the hypocrisy there. But one thing, one of the presentations was, is this uh, threat, this new threat that's coming of essentially a massive cyber attack. And I'm like, well, the fact that the World Economic Forum is warning about a cyber attack, strap in because they're pretty much telling us that there's going to be a massive cyber attack pretty soon. And it's true, though. I mean, there's all these cyber attacks that have been happening in Australia. We're actually quite vulnerable with our data security. So let's see what happens in the next few years. Yeah, hopefully I'll be able to portray some of what's at stake with these cyber attacks. Because, yes, you read about them in the news and we're affected in small, small ways, like, you know, your telecom provider might be down for a week or something, if that. But uh, you'll start to understand the potential for worldwide devastation with this story coming up. A good example had just happened this week. I can't recall if it was Wells Fargo or Bank of America or some large uh, banking institution in the US, but they had a, a minor glitch in their systems. And as a result of that, uh, there were many people that found that their bank accounts were in the negative and they couldn't get cash out. And they were contacting customer support and customer support was not assisting them. And it appeared like no one knew what was going on. And even though it appears to be rectified now, it's a demonstration for how, because we no longer use cash the way we used to, one simple cyber attack could wipe out everything. 
Like it's a Mr. Robot style destruction of yeah, my financial there's, system. There's nothing backing up the financial system. It's like a numbers on a spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah. It's a text file. <laughs> so look, we'll get into that a little bit later on. Yeah, but what if you got this show? Well, I picked up a copy of Reincarnation, True Stories of Past Lives by Roy Stemman. And I've had this book in our library for a little while, but I thought, oh yeah, you know, Reincarnation, I'll put that on the back burner. Uh, I'll crack it open later when I'm desperate. And I did it actually. I thought, I'm going to check out Reincarnation today. And this book is fantastic because it has a collection of reports that we haven't understood or haven't heard before that really highlight this concept of what I refer to as the enchanted zone. It's like this area where we know we've spoken about past life experiences that people have described before. You've got the great work of people like Jim Tucker and Ian Stevenson. Uh, You know, those guys are pioneers in the field of uh, past life memories and past life research. Um, But you find in Asian countries or in the Asian continents, uh, you find that there seems to be an increased believability amongst the locals of there being past lives. And it's because, maybe because of that, it facilitates more people coming forward describing their experiences. And the amazing thing is, is their experiences can often be validated. There's always some veridical element to them. So we're going to go into some of these more unusual cases. But before we do, I thought I would pair it with uh, some of these essays that were published last year. Now, if you recall, uh, Robert Bigelow put out a call uh, for people. Competition. It was a competition. That's right. To publish essays. Uh, Well, I think it was a $500,000 first prize uh, for people to write essays about the possibility of survivability of death, of consciousness surviving death. And uh, Jeffrey Mishlove was the person who won the $500,000 prize. And we covered his essay, his brilliant essay. He's a very, very brilliant man uh, on this show uh, a little while ago. And I'll link to it in the show notes if you want to go back and listen to that. But there were a heap of runners-up. There were a heap of runners-up. They got a $50,000 or a $20,000 prize uh, for their work. And I picked out a couple of them today. One was from Stephen E. Board, and the other one is from Sharon hewlett Roulette. Uh, so I just wanted to start by jumping into these, and then we'll go from there into some of the more crazy examples of how it's highly likely, like we shouldn't dismiss it, it's actually highly likely that reincarnation, uh, past lives, and the survivability of the consciousness actually exists. And Stephen E. Broad points out that you know people in this debate need to consider that we can't just have this slam dunk proof. Like we're never going to have this absolute slam dunk proof. We've been looking at this phenomenon for at least from an academic perspective for 60, 70 years, and we don't have that slam dunk proof. But there is sufficient evidence on a rational basis to suggest that the human consciousness survives bodily death. And of course, you've got, you know, Eastern uh, religions that believe that we merge with some type of uh, infinite existence. And even in, you know, Abrahamic religions, there's this belief of an afterlife. You know, the idea of survival after death, it's something that's always been with it. But there are a whole heap of examples out there that suggest that it is real. Now, there are non-survivalists out there that say, look, these memories, these experiences that people have, it's misreporting, it's hidden memories, and of course, it's fraud. And these things can't be ruled out. Like, you can't rule out that people have, you know, memories that, you know, just can't be explained. Uh, You can't rule out. But this is the funny thing as well, because you can say, oh, well, someone's picking up on, you know, uh, a memory of someone else. It's like, well, that suggests that there's an element of telepathy going on, or there's some type of psi phenomena taking place. So while you're disproving the idea of reincarnation, you're then going into other esoteric ideas and, and occult ideas. So, It's really a difficult kind of world to enter into, and you can see why it's filled with such controversy. Uh, But, you know, Broad points out that he has, like, this concept as well of what could be 
also causing some of these cases. And he calls them the unusual suspects. He says these are rare or abnormal processes that haven't been previously identified in some people. So some people may have eidetic memories that just hasn't been recognized. And this is why, because they don't understand they have a photographic memory, they're able to pull in so much information and your brain creates a narrative that somehow you follow, which looks similar to a past life memory. And in some circumstances, it can kind of suggest that there is past life while that's not occurring at all. Um, He also points out that there could be extreme or rare forms of savantism that could allow this to take place. And the other possibility is something that was put forward by Michael Suddeth, which is the idea of the living agent psi hypothesis. And that, you know, is, is a pretty intriguing concept in itself. But a lot of the knowledge that we have about past life experiences, though anecdotal, comes from like the late 1800s, early 1900s of people going to seances and sure. seeing mediums. Yeah. And in those reports, and there's just a multitude of them that you can go and find practically anywhere, but there's a standard kind of protocol that's followed. You have a medium, which is apparently unknown to all the other people attending this table. Uh, when they sit down, all of a sudden, voices will start coming through. And in those voices of you know that seem to be passed over loved ones of people sitting at that table comes information. A wealth of information springs forward. And the person that is the target of that information all of a sudden starts going, this is incredible. There's no way that the medium could have known that. It's the John Edwards kind of thing as well. I mean, John Edwards is accused of cold reading and there's a possibility that that, you know, it was, you can't rule anything out in these circumstances. But the living sigh idea is essentially that the person going to this, you know, uh, either a presentation or going to, you know, uh, this mediumship, they in themselves already have the intention of trying to contact a certain loved one. They have knowledge and memories of that particular person. And so the medium still has abilities, but the medium isn't connecting with a discarnate spirit. The medium is connecting with the attendee and essentially reading their mind. And that information that's coming through is being pulled from that person and then regurgitated. And then, of course, it gets reinforced. So it becomes more and more like this loop of truth, essentially, when it's not. It's coming from this you know, living agent. But that doesn't answer many of the cases that they're out there. It just Some seems these... like an overly complicated explanation. Exactly. There's no and especially to If it. someone had the ability to read uh, a person's mind in front of them, why wouldn't they just read their mind? Why would they take the form of some other personality or some kind of dead relative of the individual. Yes. Why would any of that need to take place? Yeah, well, the other example is why is it that you have, you know, random cases of people that are disconnected? So there's a whole heap of stories out there of people that will have um, a ghost appear to them and give them information about someone that they don't even know that they know, but then later on some type of synchronicity or some type of fate will take place. And then they connect with a friend who starts talking about their passed over loved one and that person goes, oh, hang on a second. I had this weird experience where I saw a ghost and the ghost was telling me, you know, not to worry about them. Um, but that happens to be your uncle. Like these weird connections that happen. And you find, and this was highlighted uh, in some of these essays that I was reading today, that it's not just simply the past life experience or the connection or the talking with the discarnate spirit. There's a connection with a whole heap of other things like uh, synchronicities that take place, uh, a series of strange events that all fall into place to cause a person to be at a certain place at a certain time to receive a certain piece of information. It's more complex than just simply sitting in front of a medium 
and getting this information coming through. Now, so what's the essay that you found that's uh, worth retelling? Well, the one from Broad points out that transplant cases are actually profoundly intriguing and they provide us with tantalising clues as to why the whole concept of the living agent psi is not satisfactory to handle you know, the answer for what's occurring here. So he points out a story from uh, Claire Sylvia. So Claire Sylvia had a very, very cha- uh, strange personality shift back in, I think it was 1997 or maybe a little bit earlier than that. She underwent a full heart and lung transplant. And I'm sorry, this happened in the late 80s. It was 1997 that she published her story, which was called A Change of Heart. But she noticed that um, once she'd had this transplant, she had these subtle personality changes. Things like, for example, she started craving the food that she'd previously disliked. Uh, She started having odd dreams. And here's another example of this, where it wasn't just that she had personality changes that seemingly came from somewhere else. She started having dreams. And she started having dreams about this man named Tim. Now, she didn't know, right? She didn't know who the donor was. She had no connection to him whatsoever. But Tim actually was the guy that had passed away after being involved in an accident. He was involved in a, in a car accident. And in these dreams that she was having, uh, this Tim man would come forward and he was wearing like a jacket. And apparently this is like when he was found, uh, he had chicken nuggets stuffed into his jacket. Like these little elements yeah. that came through that suggested, and also she became more aggressive and apparently Tim's character was quite aggressive as well. Uh, and one of these dreams was kind of um, metaphoric in a way as well, because in the dream she turned, uh, she became a man then turned back into a woman. And it was almost like this metamorphosis of what happened to Tim with his heart and lungs being transplanted into her. Yeah, I covered this in detail back in June of 2021. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, it's a fascinating case. I'll find the season and the episode we did it on. I think it's season 27. But yeah, really well-known case. I'm trying to remember some of the details well, when uh, she met him, and the reason why I mentioned this case, because it is a well-known case, but these it's like I said, it has these elements of it not just being a personality change, there's also this uh, dream element that comes through. It's like somehow because his organs are inside her, she's connecting with him, like his spirit. It's almost like a psychometry in a way that's coming through, a psychometry of the organ. But also in one of the dreams, she actually kisses him and she inhales Tim into her. Like she brings him in. It's like it's becoming some type of, I don't know, maybe it's a dream that allows her to, or both of them, to comprehend what's going on. Um, But it really highlights that this isn't just a living sigh because she knew nothing about this guy. She knew nothing about him at all. He's passed on. And yet all of his attributes and characteristics, well, not all of them, but many of them start to come through in her. But it was almost as if she felt like there was still a living part of him that had now joined into her existence. Because in the book, she says things like, on the weekdays when I was uh, separated uh, from my friends, I didn't miss them much. And sometimes I had the feelings that somebody else was in there with me, that in some intangible way, my sense of I had become a we. Yes. So he really felt like this duality. She really felt like that they were together in the same body. There was a second soul sharing my body, she said. The reason why I also mention this case is because it, it does set the scene for other cases that come up later on that aren't necessarily um, 
transplant cases, but they have the same kind of theme and that, uh, particularly with children, right? Some children recall, and this is standard, right? Normally children seem to be able to recall their past life memories much better than adults do. And if it's by the time of age of seven or so, that's when they start to abate. But for younger children, you know, three, four, five, in that kind of range, maybe six, um, that's when they start having a wealth of these uh, dreams coming through. Mm. But what was odd in some of these cases is that these kids start describing that not only do they recall their past life memories? They actually, if they have a past life memory of where they died as a child previously, which is, I mean, these things are quite horrible, but it also gives us some indication as to, you know, the way that, why things happen. You know, sometimes we ask these questions and we go, well, why? Like, why, why do bad things happen to good people? You know, why do children die and why does this happen? Uh, but some of these cases may give us some insight into the greater complexity of the world and, and why everything mm. happens. But some of these kids describe actually being possessed by their previous egos. And this is something that I also huh? have have touched on in the past, right? Because think of every single existence that you have, even though you're the one soul that's traveling through, you have a different ego, a different personality in each and every life that you live. Uh, what is odd in some of the cases that I was reading today is that some children will connect with a past life and it actually takes on an intelligence of its own. It's almost like they open the door, they let it in, the memory starts coming back. For some children, it's like they'll go past a location where they've seen something or they've experienced something from that previous life and it's like a like a click and all of a sudden it opens the door and something comes through. And it's not like a, a, a typical possession, right, where there seems to be a demonic element, a dark element to it. It's just that that particular ego of that child is unhappy about moving on and so it seems to come through and possess the new body and displaying traits of the new body. And the reason why we know about this is because the child that comes through starts saying things that are out of place for that family, but giving information about the previous family. And when they go back, the parents go back and consult with the previous family, which happens in a number of cases, they find that the details match perfectly. You know, not always. Sometimes there's a few hits that are off, but a lot of the time it matches well. So, that's an element of things that are going on. But, you know, going back to what I was saying about, you know, why do these things happen? There was a very complex case that was described. Uh, it was horrible. It was of a, a woman who was grieving because her uh, five-month-old uh, child had passed away. And, you know, she was really upset about, obviously, it's a, it's a terrible, horrible thing to take place. Uh, but life goes on as it does. And she had a, another child. And this child, it was a little girl. She was about uh, two years old. And when the child was two years old, it was a very happy, just a a normal kid. And then one day, uh, it must have been, you know, she was closer to three because she was talking better. Uh, They happened to be driving past this cemetery. And as they drive past the cemetery, the little girl in the back seat is looking out the window and she's like, mom, 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 that's where you left me. That's where you left me. Weird. And the mother goes white as a sheet. And she's obviously very freaked out by this because it was the cemetery where she had buried the five-month-old. I don't know if it was a boy or a girl. Um, and she's like, oh, but to make even things more terrifying, as the mother's driving along, she's like, oh, my God, like, how does she, how does she know that? Uh, the little girl then goes, oh, I really like the bracelet you gave me. And the mother recalled, no one knows this, apart from people, obviously, that were attending. Yeah. Um, but the mother put a little gold bracelet on, on the child when the child went into the coffin. And also, she's like, oh, and thank you for the ball. I really like the ball. And the mother's like, what ball? She's like, there was a yellow ball. You gave me a yellow ball. And the mother's like, I didn't give you a yellow ball. 
And she's like, hang on a second. You know, she's like, what are you talking about? So they go home. They start talking about this with other family members. There was an older sibling, a much older sibling, who overheard their conversation. And as the mother was trying to calm the child down, the child wasn't distressed by this because it was like it was natural. It's like just how things things work. Like it wasn't distressing for the child, obviously distressing for the mother. But the uh, older sibling stepped in and said, uh, I'm the one that left the yellow ball in the coffin. I placed it underneath the the body of the child so that you had something to play with. That's incredible. Isn't it incredible? Smoking gun. It's inc- So the argument could be, like, oh, well, no, that's living sigh, that somehow this little girl is psychic enough that she was able to not only pick up on the thoughts of the mother, but also on the older child as well. And I don't think that's the case. I think it's more likely that this is simply some type of, of reincarnation and uh, a recurrence of memories triggered by going to one of these locations. It's like when you go past the location, that's when it seems to trigger some type of event. And this is the enchantment zone. So the enchantment zone essentially applies to uh, where people are reincarnated. And it seems like in Asian countries, for example, people reincarnate very close. It's either in the same village, it's the next village over, um, or there's the other way where you enter into the other side of the enchantment zone, which is ultimately when you go past a previous location that you visited in your previous life, and it unlocks a whole heap of memories. It just unleashes everything. And there was one example actually of there was a man, I believe, in uh, it was either Bangladesh or, or Pakistan or one of these particular areas. But in fact, if you look through all these sorts of areas of Asia, for example, you know Myanmar and through Malaysia and other other parts in this region, uh, many people that have past life memories they reincarnate very close to where they'd previously passed away. And some of the stories that come through are quite fascinating in that they have a, it might be cultural, right? It may be cultural that there's kind of an archetype that's coming through, but that doesn't seem to be the case because even though there's more of a ready acceptance of the concept of reincarnation, these stories that are reported, which were collected by people like Ian Stevenson and um, you know many other uh, past life researchers, you find that um, you have the same kind of archetype popping up, and that is the archetype of the white-robed man. And what this is, is essentially someone will pass away. Usually it happens through a sudden death. This is what many of the reports are. You know, One example was of a man who um, he was suffering from a fever of some kind, some type of illness. The last thing he remembers is being placed inside an oxen cart. I mean, this is just how, you know, uh, very remote these locations are, and being wheeled to a hospital or to a makeshift hospital. Sure. And when he was in the hospital, uh, he passed away. That's where he died. Uh, and I think in that particular story as well, it was described that he said that when he was uh, passing away, he said that all of a sudden he could hear, and this is what people describe in their near-death experiences quite commonly, that he could hear everything around him. He could see everything that was going on. Everything was in this stereoscopic 3D vision where he could see just everything so perfectly. I mean, people have described being able to see like the wings of a mosquito. Like they can see like this imperfection, everything that's around them while they're out of body in this particular state. But he said a vortex opened. He said it was like a funnel. Like the the word he used was funnel, but this funnel opened and the funnel opened in the top right-hand corner of the room. Now, what do we hear in other near-death experiences? People say that they are somehow sucked up to the corner of the room and they sit over the corner of the room watching what's going on. Now, he claims that he was sucked up through this funnel flung into a tunnel with a white light, you know how it is, uh, and then, of course, you know, finds himself waking up in his new life, like coming back in his, in his new life. Uh, but similar stories like this are where um, people don't get sucked up into that tunnel. They don't go into that space. They find themselves wandering about in a discarnate form. But often they end up in this jungle. 
Now, maybe it's just because of the location, these areas, like it is the equator, or it is highly, you know, dense jungle, and maybe that's just kind of the archetype for what's going on. A literal jungle. It's a literal jungle. They find themselves discarnate, just wandering about a jungle, and many of them start to panic. This is what the the reincarnated people obviously are describing as they're recalling these memories. But they recall that they start to panic, which is, you would hope, something that you don't experience when you're, you know, you've died. It shouldn't be a, you know, a panicked, horrible experience. Hopefully, you know, it should be a peaceful passing on. But no, they start wandering around this jungle. They panic. And out of nowhere, this man in white robes appears. And it's the same archetype in many of these stories. It's kind of got like a, a Buddhist kind of style to it with a, a sash across and it's white. And he'll take you uh, to back to a village and he'll go and check it out. So there's one story of a guy that was taken back to his home. He was taken back to where he'd passed away and he was he's, like he was told to wait outside and the man goes inside and checks on the wife and his children and then he comes back outside and he's like, you'll come with me. And he takes him like eight miles or something, eight miles to another, to another village. And he's like, wait here. And he goes inside this hut, right? And he comes back out and he's like, okay, let's go. And takes him inside <laughs> and that's it, right? That's it. goes blank. Yeah, goes, yeah. And then and the born. kid is born. Yeah. And the kid starts going, I'm not meant to be here. I remember I was eight miles away in that village over there. There was one report of a kid that had this type of experience, like recalling this guide. He um, like is so insistent on once he can talk that, no, 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 I died. I died of a fever, but I need to go back and see my family. I remember my wife. I remember what happened. And he goes back to actually see the family. And what's incredible is not only is he able, this child, to identify his former wife, uh, people show up, like other extended family members show up and he can identify his mother-in-law and his father-in-law and he knows them by name but has no connection to them previously in this life. But one thing that's really strange is that he can identify two of his children, but there's a third. And he can't identify the third child. Born after he died, It was born after he died. I remember we covered a story like that from China where the child remembered not only their previous life, but the one before. They remembered two previous lifetimes. And it was a similar situation where they were basically led back to their village where they knew their family and they knew their neighbours. Except in this instance, there was no pregnant women, so there was no one to incarnate into. But one of the pigs in the village was pregnant. And so oh, yes. <laughs> this child remembers yes. basically going, no, 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 anywhere but there, anywhere but there, and just ending up in the womb of this pig and being born as a pig who was eventually slaughtered by the, the village yep. and then was able to reincarnate as one of the yeah, children in the village. It's strange, right? It's strange how there seems to be these parameters on it because you would go, well, if you can't reincarnate there, why would you reincarnate in a pig? Like, why does it have to be in this localized zone? But it seems to be there's some higher purpose. It's like this uh, cosmic set of laws that are set in place. And I know that sounds very new age, but this is what a lot of researchers have pointed out. It's like when you look at these cases, you find that it's a very localized setup. So there was one example of, um, I believe it was a, a young girl and she started recalling her past life memories. And uh, again, young, driving along, and she starts talking to her mother about her past life. And she was like, oh, well, uh, when I was a boy, when I was going to do this and the mother goes cold. And she's like, what are you talking about? She's like, no, I was here before. I was going to be here before. Um, but, you know, I, I saw you and daddy fighting so much and you two have to stay together. If you two hadn't stayed together, then the plan could have come to place. Or, you know, this couldn't, this couldn't work out. And what I need to do in this life couldn't happen. So I turned myself into a girl. 
And the mother is very confused. Like, it all sounds very strange and, and very confusing, and she's trying to understand. Now, uh, she went to a researcher, and a researcher obviously looked at this and, and tried to understand what was going on. And what she found out is that this couple had a, uh, a boy. A boy was coming, right? And for whatever reason, uh, the parents started fighting about circumcision, about whether the boy should be circumcised, and they got so uh, you know staunchly stuck in their ways, each of them, that it could have led to a divorce. Like, this is how bad it was for the two of them. So, as this boy, she caused herself to have a, um, essentially a spontaneous death. Like, she caused herself as that boy to be removed from the body. She just dropped out. She dropped out, right? And she came back as a little girl. And that way her parents wouldn't fight and she should go about her life in this particular existence and fulfill the duties that she has to fill. So it's strange. And then there was another example. I can't recall if this was connected to the same one, but there was a, a strange example. No, it was this dream. Um, it, it was where she actually recalls how uh, the stillbirth or the miscarriage, I'm sorry, occurred. And she said, I remember being like a, a white blob of some kind. I was a white blob. And I remember falling out and hitting a surface. I remember this one. Uh, she hit a surface. Yeah, right? yeah. And when it went splosh, and then it kind of everything just went away. Like she couldn't recall anything else. And the mother is is shocked because the mother says that when she had her miscarriage, yeah. uh, it literally dropped out of her while she was in the shower. I remember this one. Isn't it amazing? Like it's just amazing. And, and there was the it- Japanese researcher, I can't remember his name, but he covered the cases of, um, what's the term you would use? Um, like artificial insemination where they had oh, yeah. the embryos on ice and- they, the children had memories of being in the ice cave. Yes. You know, they told their parents, when when I was in the ice cave, you know, I remember being trapped there and the parents had never told them that they were from IVF. Yeah. And I, I remember in one case, the child was asking about their brothers and sisters that were still in the ice cave. And how could the child have known that? Yeah. How, and this is the thing. How could the child have known that? But this is where you also have, you know, these elements of uh, pre-birth memories that come through. And this is something, Ben, that, um, you know, we've discussed in the past. Oh, I think even Nandor Fodor, which I know um, I've, I've tried to order his book and it hasn't arrived yet, but he's done a lot of research into this, this whole idea of the, the connection between, um, you know, the parents and the child and the child coming through. And so many of these reincarnation reports have these very fascinating elements that pop up of people that are either discarnate, right? They've passed away in a previous life and they don't go anywhere. They just wander about. They just wander about a certain place. And all of a sudden, when they see a pregnant woman walk past, they jump on them. Bam, it's get like in a there. weird possession. Got to get in it's there. Like, it's really horrible. And I think we've asked the question, well, what happens to the soul or the body that was going in? And then there's some ideas when you look at like, um, I don't know if it's Buddhism, but Eastern traditions that the soul doesn't inhabit the body until all the, of the embryo until, what is it, 21 days or something like that. So maybe that's what's happening. Uh, are you pushing something else out though? Is it another spirit has to wander about? You know, there was a kid, this kid starts describing hovering around. It was actually quite gross. There was um, one that described um, seeing... Uh, himself being conceived and he told his mother all about it he's like I was conceived in the bathroom it was because dad came home one day and uh, he said don't worry about the diaphragm (laughs) and you had sex and that's when I was born and that was my own because you normally use birth control that was the only opportunity I had to get in so I jumped in there and there was a joy and excitement in this spirit 
of being able to get in, to find a way to get in because he had to go in through those parents. There's quite a few stories like that where people remember being like a hovering little spirit ball. Yes. And watching their parents conceive them. Gross. <laughs> like, come on, Dad. Come on. Yeah. Well, there was a couple. There was a woman that um, the child, I believe it was a daughter, starts talking about her mother's yellow dress. And she's like, oh, this, this uh, yellow dress that you had that you threw out. And the mother's like, how did you know that? What are you talking about? And she's like, oh, I was just hanging around. You had that yellow dress on when I, when I jumped into you. She's like, what? And she recalls that one particular day um, she had cut her finger. And when she'd cut her finger, it was so bad that she had to go to the emergency room. So this soul was hanging around the emergency room. Weird. And jumped into her while she must have just been newly pregnant. And she had this uh, yellow dress on and the yellow dress got bloodstained. So she threw it out. So was it someone who had recently died in the hospital That's and the hadn't, hadn't passed on completely? That's the implication. It's not, or was it, it an, say an abortion that was hanging around the hospital? Yeah, well, that's that's another possibility. Because that's well. what people with this extrasensory ability describe is that around the hospital, there's a cloud in another dimension just filled with the, the souls that have been aborted. Well, not yeah. the hospital, wherever it takes just place. Where, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. It's um, And it, they're stuck. Because their path of life wasn't fulfilled. And that's part of the tradition in the Asian cultures of where this idea of a roaming discarnate spirit comes from is because really? when they're incarnated, higher beings have set forward a path, a destiny for them to fulfill. Their life is planned. Like what and I when, just described. Yeah, when that is taken away, they essentially have to wait until that plan, the time allotted for that plan is finished until they can move on. Well, you see how complex it is because it's not just that life. It's every other person that they would interact with through that plan. Of course, so if that yeah. one plan is damaged or stopped, then all the other plans have to be adjusted. So you can see how from a spiritual perspective, it becomes you know, extremely muddy. And But then, you know, in a, I suppose a contrast, you hear these other stories of people that have, you know, that are living, right? And they're having their near-death experiences and they almost get to the point of, of crossing over the threshold, but something happens that prevents them from being able to come back through. So that question before of like, well, what does it happen? And researchers have looked at this. They've looked at it. How long does it take for reincarnation to take place? Because it's not this precise nine-month thing. It's not like someone dies and then nine months later, you can match up a birth somewhere else and you see that that's what happened. Sometimes it can be 60 years. I mean, the average that some people have said is 70 years. But then if you head into Asia, you find that it's nine years. And you know, it, it's very strange, these timings that happen. But there was one report that was published in a London newspaper. And I know that you know back then, it was like the early 1900s that there could be a whole heap of uh, dodgy journalism going on. But it was later investigated by a leading psychical researcher. And it was a story of a child that was older but was going through a near-death experience. I don't know if he was suffering from a, a fever or something like that, but he found himself propelled out of his body and he's floating around and all of a sudden he's trying to find his way back, like he's trying to get back. And he sees his neighbor is giving birth at home. And as he comes down... He tries to fit into the baby. He tries to climb into the baby <laughs> and then, like a mask, place his face into the baby's face to where the face would be, right? And then all of a sudden, boom, something happens and it knocks him out. Mm. Like he's knocked out of the body. Good, get out of that baby. And he has to go back to his own. And he comes back, like he comes too. And he recalls this experience and he tells the physician and he tells his parents. And sadly, what we find out later on is that 
the woman, the neighbor, was indeed giving birth to a child, but sadly it was a stillbirth, right? Mm. But the question is, is that, that was that always going to be a stillbirth? And was it that he came through and for whatever reason that just wasn't meant to be? And that's why he couldn't get into that body. Or is it a more, you know, terrible scenario in that he tried to get in and they got kicked out it and then it like caused possession. something else? Yeah, there's a lot of possession. But there is, there's a lot of possession elements that, that go on with this stuff. And normally possession I view and, you know, we view on the show from a more negative light. But in, in this kind of stuff, it's not necessarily always that bad. Um, but let's go back, you know, speaking about possession, let's go back and have a look at one more of these um, transplant cases. And this case was uh, highlighted of a, a 24-year-old female who sadly had been killed in an automobile accident. And the recipient was a 25-year-old male graduate student who was suffering from cystic fibrosis. Now, the element of this story, which is strange, is that the, the poor young girl that was killed, uh, she was a lesbian artist. Now, that's not important, right? But it's, it does seem to play into here, right? Now, the guy, the cystic fibrosis sufferer, found out because you get told, oh, you're going to have a transplant, obviously. And he found out it was coming from a woman. And he even said he didn't know that she was a lesbian, but apparently it works out quite perfectly in this circumstance because his concern was not about the fact that he would die if he'd get a transplant. His concern was that if he got the heart of a woman, he would become an art dealer. Right, I get what you're saying. I get what yep, you're saying. Yep. He'd be start exchanging art. Yeah, hey, look, uh, that's, sounds, a, that's a plus joke. So it, that's going to go. Over it the heads. sounds a bit. He's worried he's going to be me. gay. He's worried he's, he's going to be gay. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's uh, you might think that that's funny and silly, but if you go back to Claire Sylvia's case, because she received the heart transplant of the young man that died in that crash, she started to notice that she became more masculine. And even she did, yes. her close and friends, aggressive. her family members said, why are you, like one day her mother said, why are you walking like that? You're walking like a man. Yeah, the gate changed. And she realized she was strutting. She was strutting like a man. And she even to the point of uh, noticing other women, she started to notice a, a, a specific type of woman. She seemed to always, her eyes were caught by short blondes. For some reason. And is that, did we find out later on that Tim was interested in short well, blondes? I, I don't know if, I'm not sure if he had a, a girlfriend or anything. I can't remember the full story. But yeah, she found out that she just, uh, she couldn't figure it out. There was like some male energy, she said, that was within her responding to shorter, rounder, blonder women. She found herself looking at them. So yeah, this guy that's uh, worried about the origin of his transplant, it's not entirely unfounded. Well, maybe something would have happened, right? But it just so happens that she was a lesbian so he was fine because his girlfriend was like, all of a sudden, after he had the transplant, he knew my body. He was much more caring. He was softer. It was like he knew his way around a woman's body. He wore a purse, but apart from right. that, he was really good with my body. But he wasn't gay. <laughs> Such a good sample. Yes, that's right. No, he wasn't. Um, you know what, though? Funny that we should mention that because in Reincarnation, True Stories of Past Lives by Roy Stemmen, uh, I've got it here. I can't find where it was, but there was this one very short uh, paragraph here. Oh, yes, it's called The Return of the Japanese Samurai. And this relates to an English therapist by the name of Alex Weeks. Now, Alex Weeks even though he's a therapist, uh, he also got quite uh, fascinated by the concept of past life memories, reincarnation, and it makes sense. It's like, you know, so many times in the past when we're talking about people that are having these past life memory recalls, it normally doesn't start, I mean, yes, there's spontaneous, you know, kids having these memories, but for people that have it when they're later, it doesn't spontaneously start. It's only after they start going to therapy, for example, and these things start 
bubbling to the surface and coming through. And that's how you find these cases of people that have, you know, phobias and fears and that kind of stuff and, you know, certain personality disorders and that kind of thing. They seemingly, in some circumstances, relate to a trauma or a problem that occurred in a previous life. And once treated in a previous life, or at least acknowledged in a previous life, they start to get better. And so with Alex Weeks, he was a gay man. Uh, I mean, I don't know if he's still alive, but this book is quite, you know, is about 30 years old now. Uh, but he noticed that uh, a lot of the, the, the gay male patients he was treating, they had a specific type of um, past life memory coming through. Now, none of his patients were connected. He wasn't sharing their stories, obviously, because he's a, a gestalt therapist. You know, he's not going to be sharing this information. Um, but what he found is he started to get the idea because he said, look, there was this kind of trend that... Um, the reason why people were gay is because it was like you were female in your past life and you're kind of trapped in the opposite sex body coming through. Sure. I mean, maybe that explains some trans people. I don't know. Like, it's a, just a suggestion. I don't know what's going on there. But Alex Weeks in his research was quite convinced that that wasn't the case of what was going on. But he did find a subset of around 300 past life memories in a group of 50 men that seemingly reincarnated from the same group. They all... These 50 men in 300 different um, circumstances, and they were suffering from HIV, like it seemed to also focus on these oh, men that really? were HIV positive. They all came from a group of samurai in Japan around the 13th century. What? All of them. What the hell is that? And this is where you Hang start- on, so let me understand this. This is a group of a, men. So a group, uh, So a group of 50 men disconnected from each other, but all HIV positive, that all are having therapy with Alex Weeks. They start describing their past life memories. Their past life memories, all of them, 300 of them, all relate to the same set of circumstances gotcha. in the same time in history in Japan in the 13th century. They don't know each other at all? They don't know each other. I mean, they might, obviously, some of them might know each other. But they all live in the same city. They'll be all in the same city. They'll be all... In, and you know what? Well, the, the common denominator is obviously the psychiatrist. So you've got to, look, and you've that, got to wonder what's going on there. Is he influencing them in some way? And look, that is an argument that has been put forward. Um, but I think, you know, as a therapist and someone approaching these topics, you would you would obviously check yourself for that. You wouldn't guide people to go, well, was it Japan? Yeah. <laughs> was it the 13th? Are you a samurai? Do you see a large sword? Just I don't play kabuki music <laughs> in your office all the time so they can hear it. I don't I don't think that's what's taking place. Maybe. Maybe there's some some conscious mechanism that we're not aware of. But this seems like this comes plays into a larger role of group karma. Did they know each other when they were in that Japanese lifetime? Well, that's the suggestion. That were they're that all is, part they're of the all same part clan. Of the same clan. They're all part of the same group. So were they cursed? Were they um, having to serve a certain you know role because of what they did? Were they involved in some type of terrible attack or atrocity? Is, you say what you're suggesting is HIV could potentially be some kind of ancient Japanese curse. Well, maybe for these particular people, <laughs> right? In, in in this particular circumstance, I'm not saying for all and for everyone. And it's a very esoteric way of approaching it. And as absurd as it sounds, right? Like I'm not giving. <laughs> I'm not giving it in the context, though, of the other stories that are in here. But what I will say, and I'll link to this book in the show notes so you can check it out for yourself, it highlights multiple circumstances of apparently entire villages that reincarnate together. Right. Like entire villages. And then it's like, well, if you commit a certain atrocity or a certain act, so a lot of it, you know, controversially so, right, comes up in regards to the Holocaust. Like there's a whole heap of reincarnation stories that even some people, I can't remember who it was, um, but it was quite a, a controversial statement that um, the people that 
suffered from atrocities uh, during the Holocaust were then repaying debts from previous lives. And that came up, I think it was from an actual Jewish past life researcher because some of these, uh, when you look at Jewish past life memories, and we've discussed some of those, um, you know, books and stories on the show, um, they reincarnate as non-Jews, which is odd. And then some of the arguments that was put there was, well, it was because it was like a... um, they had to somehow go through trials and tribulations as a non-Jew to go back. I don't know. There are interesting implications of this line of thinking because uh, some of the research that we've seen suggests that there are these karmic repercussions in various layers of the stratus of society. So Very there's obviously so. karma for the individual, but there's also karma for the family and karma for the ancestors. But then on a broader scale, there's karma for your region. There's karma for your town, for your city. There's karma for your nation. There's karma for your race. There's karma for your species. Well, and there's also collective karma for your thought patterns and, you know, your political opinions and all that kind of stuff. Like all of this plays a much larger uh, cosmic role that we just simply can't see. We can't understand. Um, and, you know, it's some of it, though, it might have some positive, you know, positive information that can come from it. You know, because it's the whole point of this, right? And this is what's made very, very clear in, in many of these cases. And what certainly is highlighted by Roy Stenman is that if we begin to understand the, the role, well, first of all, that reincarnation exists. Like there's enough evidence, though anecdotal, there's enough evidence to suggest that it's highly likely that reincarnation in some form exists. Sure. Like there's something there. Uh, what would it is, we're not entirely sure, but there's something there. If we start to accept that and be open to it, it starts to change the way that we interact with each other. It starts to change like this whole idea of, you know, tearing people apart through, you know, race and creed and lifestyle and everything. It all starts to break down because you don't know what you've gone through in, pre- in a previous life. You don't know what you're going to go through in a future life. You don't know how your particular circumstance today relates to another person. You don't know the karma you're carrying. And this is the thing. You carry these karmic debts with other people as well. So you might be hard done by by someone in this life but there's a reason for that. Now, I'm not saying it's right, right? But it might be that, that there's some type of karmic debt there. And as a positive, though, if you don't react, if you just ignore that, you actually clear that debt. Like That's the whole idea. Yeah, if you don't uh, retaliate re- return, and, return the uh, karma. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So maybe, and this is part of the system, right? So if we start to kind of accept this, and this is why it's so dangerous, actually, that we're pushing so much harder to materialism and transhumanism and this kind of stuff, because really it's kind of like you are going to plug into the matrix. Like all spiritualism is just going to disappear and you're going to be caught up in this reality. It's still going to be there, but because you're so disconnected from it, you're going to have you know, a much tougher time than what the cosmos is actually intended for people. Yeah, and I don't know, and maybe this is why, like there was one example that was put forward. Well, that's their, that's their goal, because what transhumanism is to break your to way do is spiritualism. to go beyond a human being, mm. become transhuman. Do you know? So uh, you're no longer in a world that is for humans, you're something else. Something else. You know Dick Sutphin, right? We've covered some of his books, you know, really fascinating guy. Um, do you recall the, the 700 year theory? Do you remember him putting that forward? No. So Dick Sutphin, I don't think we actually touched on it. Dick Sutphin believed that he was part of a, a very, very ancient group in Teotihuacan. And he claims that he was, again, this is like the whole group kind of stuff, right? And there was a group of roughly, I think, 
I think it was like um, 2,500 of them. Maybe maybe it was 25,000. Don't quote me on that. But in this past life, he had this memory of this very advanced civilization. Now, the civilization was almost at the peak of spiritual uh, spiritualism and also like being, you know, considerate of others. It was like Japan on steroids. You know, it was very, you know, a, a very calm society. But then something went wrong and this cult of the jaguar came in. And the cult of the jaguar... Uh, essentially were this uh, this group that was trying to drag them away from the spiritualism, trying to bring in all this horrible stuff, you know, and, and taking over and controlling. And so what happened is, is that it was kind of like convert or die to this cult of the Jaguar. Yeah. And this group didn't. There was like 25,000. They refused to, and they were all killed. But they became this group, right, that reincarnate every 700 years. And the reason why they- Together. Re- together, right? And all across the planet. And they reincarnate every 700 years. And you know why they do it? They do it because it brings back, they're supposed to bring with it, uh, it's like this mechanism uh, of letting people know that reincarnation exists. So it like, it, it actually, these people, each and every one, they come back with stories of reincarnation and memories of their past lives so they can get people every 700 years reinterested in reincarnation. So if Dick Sutphin was one of them, that means we've, we've just missed them. Yeah, they're, just they're due yeah. in about six hundred and fifty years, something, or something like that. Yeah, exactly. But no, we've spoken about his stories. So his whole plan actually worked. All I remember from his stories is the guy that realised he had re- reincarnated in two bodies. So another part of his soul was in a hot French woman in France somewhere. <laughs> And he jumped on a plane to That's try and one find of the 25, her. That's Right. That's one of them. And they bring these memories back. And guess what we did? We shared it to thousands of people. So we ah. got people interested in reincarnation. Or at least questioning it. I don't even know if you're interested, but at least you're questioning it. But do you see how it acts as like this homeostatic mechanism? It's like it's some type of spiritual mechanism that comes through to keep us kind of connected at some level to the concept of reincarnation and the whole, you know, wealth of uh, benefits that come with it. It's a very modern way to look at it because most cultures before our own Western view understood reincarnation and accepted it to a certain degree. That's true, yeah. So we're, we're kind of the anomaly. We are. And e- but so you don't even need some today, Jaguar tribe to come every 700 years. It was just understood. That's right. But even today, you know, in Asian cultures, as I've pointed out, you know, they still readily believe in reincarnation and readily accept it. And which is why, you know, people use that though as a skeptical point and say, well, because they believe in it, they're making it happen. And it's like, well, no. And in some ways, believing it actually allows it to flourish. Because then it's like there's no fear of people talking about it. It happens more often than you think. People have these experiences more often than you think. But because of this kind of march that we have towards staunch materialism, people don't want to talk about it. Mm. They don't want to describe it. They don't want to get ridiculed. You know, there's, there's a lot of... Um, and look, there are crazies out there. There definitely are crazies out there that think that they're, you know, the the reincarnated, you know, Liz Taylor of the Ming Dynasty or something like that. You know, it's like, it's crazy. Plenty of people think they're reincarnated. Jesus, all that kind of stuff. I think you can easily and readily dis- dismiss those. It's the cases that have some type of ridicule information that really suggests that, look, there's there's something to it. There is something that is really going on here. Uh, and then, of course, you've got, um, I mentioned the Matrix there before, but I mentioned it because today... I was reading about a, a, a Russian hypnotherapist that had created uh, a type of upload technology using a whole new form of hypnosis. But what this was, this is really fascinating. I've heard stories before of uh, people that have past life regressions and in their past life regression, they realize that they're a musician. And all of a sudden, when they come out of the regression, they can play a flute. Well, not, not straight away, but they start to, you know, all of a sudden I'll take up that previous experience that they had. There was one story I was reading today of a guy that, um, you know, went to, he 
all his life, he wanted to join the RAF, the RAF, the Royal Air Force in, in England or in Britain. And he kept on wanting to join and he grew up and he joined the RAF. And on this one particular day, he was placed in front of this instrument of some kind. And immediately the guy was just like, dude, 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 dude. it was a Morse code machine. And he straight away, without any knowledge of Morse code. He just starts typing it out. He's just tapping it out. <laughs> You know, like, hey, how you going? Yeah, yeah, iceberg. Yeah, everything's going great. Oh, good. You know, and the, the Air Force was shocked. The Air Force said to him, oh, how did you learn Morse code? You got 100%. And he's like, I don't know Morse code. And then all the memory, like this trigger event, all these memories started flash, you know, flashing back, right? And he ended up pulling out so many memories that he was able to get the name of the guy that he was in a previous lifetime. Wow. Uh, and I think in that particular circumstance, there was this another element, and I, I can't recall if that was the same case because there are just so many of them. Um... But I believe in that particular circumstance, he was a uh, he was scared of flying to a certain height, right? And the reason was is because in his past life, he was a, a Nazi pilot, like he was a, a German pilot that was shot down over Wales, I think, or somewhere like that, uh, and he was decapitated. But he knew Morse code. That that was part of his knowledge that he had attained, right? And so he'd still wanted to stay in the Air Force. But you know what the freaky part is? Is that his uncle had actually recovered, like once he found out the, the German pilot's name, his uncle had pulled his decapitated body from the battlefield. What? Isn't that weird? So no connection, nothing at all, until later on the memory, doesn't even know who that guy, but he later on finds out. His uncle out, in his current life. His uncle in his current life had removed that body from a farm because it crashed, like it crashed. Well, that's obviously up. the connection. Yeah, but so his spirit would have maybe have seen this act and thought, "Well, look, look at this guy; he's treating my body with oh, respect." Oh, I hadn't thought of it I'm that gonna, way. I'm going to follow this guy, and maybe through that connection, so that he reincarnated into the family. Interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but that's a possibility as well. Uh, but going back to to the Russian guy, I think his name was Rashov. Uh, what's it? He actually I've got it right here in my notes. Vladimir uh, Rykov. Sorry, Vladimir Rykov. Now. Vladimir Rykov was actually a, a fascinating man in that he wasn't so much concerned about past lives. He was more concerned about using a new powerful hypnotic technique that was developed in the 1960s that could induce a new form of active trance. And in this altered state of consciousness, the subject could be taken to someone who was famous and abstract their talents from them. Like not necessarily steal them, but learn their talents. So you could go and find a fine artist or you could be put into this state of like a, a previous life. Go and find this person, find Da Vinci, learn their talents in this matrix loading room. Yeah, load it up. All right, load like it matrix. up and come back. And what stands out is that many of these people, so they were not, uh, and many of the, the subjects in his case that were pre presented uh, at a university, uh, they were highly intelligent, but they weren't artistic, you know. And, but after that had this uh, therapy that was taken, given to them, they then all of a sudden had this incredible artistic ability that previously they hadn't had. They displayed no artistic ability whatsoever prior. And then having like 25 sessions, all of a sudden they developed these skills. Well, that's always been the argument with some young children who are virtuosos that a piano or some other instrument or some other... Uh, I remember we covered a story of a young boy who was just a master at golf from the age of three. Oh, yes. He could just putt from a mile and he was had an incredible swing and it was just absolutely ridiculous. And he ended up having memories emerge of being a, a, a golfer in a past life. Yes, and it's repeated over and over again. There are just so many stories, so I won't include them all in this particular section. I'll link to the book and to these uh, wonderful essays in the show notes at mysteriousuniverse.org so you can check them out for yourself. But I do want to leave you with one thing. 
Because, you know, we can be dismissive of, you know, so many of these stories. It's quite easy to do that because you can always find a way to debunk them to a certain degree. And it's always left in this kind of area of limbo. But I am particularly fascinated by the future life regressions that pop up through history. And there were two people. There was uh, Chet Snow and Jenny Cockle. Now, they came through with some very uh, interesting future life progressions, right? And Jenny herself... uh, found herself being flung into 20, uh, 2040, right? And Chet Snow was around the, the same- The year 2040. The year 2040. How? This is how when they did this future life regression, I suppose, or future life therapy technique, they found themselves in their future lives around 2040. I think Jenny also found herself around a mountain somewhere with this uh, red dirt. Uh, but guess what both of them described? Right? And just in the context of where we are today in the world, this is why today, in fact, because today I was like- uh, <gasps> Post-apocalyptic wasteland. Even today, because I was like, I've had headphones on and I didn't realize that you were in the office. I'd be like, <gasps> you're like, shut up. <laughs> it was so shocking. It was annoying. <laughs> it was so shocking to me in the context of today. One, both of them, they saw a massive depopulation by 2040. Huge huge global depopulation by the year 2040. And what are we just finding out now? Who cares about the, what the WEF is saying and what all the greenies are carrying on about? The world isn't overpopulated. We are on the precipice of massive uh, population collapse. China, for the first time in 60 years, as a result of their one-child policy and infanticide, have just had a decline in population. Well, it's almost every developed nation it's in the world. every like, developed nation. If you look at those uh, demographic graphs, everyone has that kind of inverted pyramid yes. almost now where... Fertility yeah, rates just, are collapsing. It is, it is are collapsing. a demographic collapse on a worldwide scale. We I think an aging population. The only good graph I saw was Nigeria. So there's a couple of places in Africa that still have that nice uh, population pyramid, demographic pyramid, Mm -hmm. but uh, everywhere else, it's it's pretty much over in the next 50 years. Coincidentally, you know, not suggesting anything, but uh, Africa has been unaffected by the rollouts of certain medications. And because, I I mentioned that because Jenny Cockle says that... um, and this is what Chet Snow saw as well, like some type of potential disaster, like there was like a maybe a pole shift or something. But Jenny goes, no, there was the introduction of some type of chemical into the human race that has causes to happen. Oh, my gosh. And I'm just like, what could that be? What could that be? Some kind of climate change molecule. Yes. Some type of <laughs> pseudo-uridase enhanced protein of some kind, perhaps. I don't know. It's, uh, I don't know. These people are having future life regressions. They simply could be making it up, but they're describing what I think is happening right now. And I didn't know this. I haven't, I haven't read this book before. I've never gone in anywhere near it. Uh, and for them to describe this, I don't know. I hope I'm wrong. I hope they're wrong. It's fascinating. Maybe they really did go to 2040. It doesn't look good. Oh, well, and, and actually, I forgot to mention as well, it's even worse, right? It gets even worse oh, because good. Jenny... Jenny has another past, oh, sorry, future life regression, and she ends up in the year 2300 or something like that, where we're supposed to have starships. But no, she's working for a small American company called Unichem. That doesn't sound that bad, because they're a small American company. But they're not... probably making Soylent Green. Right, just grinding up the <laughs> remaining people to serve the elites. That's right, exactly. Well, that's a fun way to end the free show. I'll, I'll mention a little bit about what I've got coming up. Again, I'm going to go into James Bamford's new book, Spy Fail, Foreign Spies, Moles, Saboteurs, and the Collapse of America's Counterintelligence. He starts the story with uh, the retired Air Force General, James Clapper. Remember, this was Obama's uh, director of national intelligence. He's touching down in Pyongyang in North Korea. 
And he's arriving for a secret meeting with the North Korean spymaster, General Kim Yong-chol. It's basically Clapper's rival in North Korea. It's November the 7th, 2014. And this trip had just been completely spur of the moment, like unforeseen, because Kim Jong-un had suddenly decided to release two American prisoners if the US would send a letter from President Obama along with a cabinet-level national security official to pick them up. Now, the reason uh, Kim Jong-un wanted to do this is because he wanted to have at least have a discussion about relations between the two countries. And it was something that could obviously only be done in secret, and he needed to speak to a senior cabinet-level official who had the ear of the president. Mm Mm-hmm. So Obama was basically like, all right, Clapper, you're going. And within hours, like he was still in his pajamas. He's got to like get ready, pack his suitcase. And he heads off to the Air Force Base and he's flying to Pyongyang. And when he arrives, he jumps in this limousine they get for him and he's just driving through, you know, the dark streets of Pyongyang. And there's like a streetlight here or there, but it's just, there's nothing going on. And they arrive at a bowling alley. There's just in the middle of this kind of dark dead city there's this giant neon sign for a bowling alley and apparently that's where he likes to have all the top secret meetings with the foreign people of importance pin smashing somehow stop bugs well they have a bowling alley on the bottom floor but then you go up and there's like a nice restaurant area and they have this meal sorted out so clapper's sitting down having this multi-course dinner with you know the head of the korean intelligence agency and At that moment, as he's eating some kimchi or something, uh, Kim Jong-un was covertly conducting the largest cyber attack in history against a US corporation. Oh, was it some kind of um, trap? Well, a deflection? Neither Clapper nor his army of spies had a clue what was going on. And this was an intelligence blunder of enormous proportions, Bamford says. Because if this dinner produced no a positive outcome for the North Koreans. Yeah, no diplomatic response. Kim would open the digital floodgates and release every embarrassing bite of information his cyber team had already hoovered up. But Clapper already had a deep secret of his own that would result in even more enormous retaliation if it was discovered by the North Koreans. You see, several years earlier under orders from Obama. He had launched a massive all-out cyber war attack against North Korea. And it was basically the same kind of attack that took out Iran's nuclear facilities. It was the Stuxnet. And it was designed to destroy North Korea's nuclear infrastructure. But unlike in Iran, the attack failed. And it likely failed without anyone in North Korea, including this General Kim he's having this dinner with, ever being aware of it. So, Clapper knew that there were serious dangers of retaliation if Kim Jong-un or this spymaster ever discovered this act of war against North Korea because it really was an act of war. Do we know why it failed? We, do, we don't know why. It could have been because the North Koreans had more security than the Iranians. Right. But for now, that remained a secret. But Kim Jong-un was instead retaliating against another target. He was going after Sony Pictures because of the film they were working on 
that, of course, had his head exploding. So imagine you're (laughs) the dictator of this country and you know that there's this movie being made where your head is turned into a giant marshmallow that catches on fire. That was the original part of the script. They were going to make his head turn into a charred marshmallow. I don't remember that being part of the film. Did that actually get into the film? Well, I'm going to go into the back and forths of all the discussions about how to get his marshmallow head to look in a certain way and whether <laughs> to explode it and how much blood to use. That was all in this... Uh, oh, it was all in the email. It was all in this back and forth. And incredibly... As this discussion's going, like Seth Rogen saying, no, my creative vision's going to be destroyed if I can't blow up his head. Kim Jong-un is reading all of these emails. Oh, my God. They're reading every line of it, every single email from these guys. So, after the break, we're going to go into what was uncovered, how this tied into the... uh, the Americans' attack on North Korea earlier and how ultimately this led to a cyber pandemic that spread across the world and took out major infrastructure in almost every major country. That's coming up after this on Plus. If you want to get access, head to mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus for all the details. Sign up today. When you sign on, you get access to the big extensions we do on Friday and you also get an exclusive season that's running concurrently with this one that comes out on Tuesdays. All exclusive to Plus members. Members also get a higher quality audio version of the show. Totally ad-free version of the podcast as well. And if you sign up for MU Max, you get access to the 16,000 years worth of shows we've got in the back catalogue. Just endless, endless content in there. It's 13,000 years, okay? Yeah, okay, I can lose count. Again, mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus. Sign up today. That's a wrap for this free edition of the show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us. If you're on Plus, stick around for the great stuff after the break. For everyone else, we'll catch you next week. Welcome back to your Plus Extension. Great to have you with us. Looking forward to sharing the story with you.